Good morning. Uh, you can be turning to Psalm 3 in your Bibles. Psalm 3, or it is printed for you in the bulletin there as always. It's good to be back with you. If we haven't met, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm the campus minister for Reform University Fellowship down in Hattiesburg at Southern Miss. And uh, it's good to be back here uh, at Faith. So we're going to look at Psalm 3, maybe not the most well-known psalm, um, but very applicable, very pertinent to us. I'm sure I'm not the only one of us who has already in the new year found themselves uh, ready for another vacation, uh, ready for another rest, or maybe who came out of a Christmas vacation needing a vacation from a vacation. And so the search for rest is going to be part of 2022 as much as it was 2021 and 2020 and every year before that. So if you're here this morning wondering about the topic of rest, where can I find rest? This psalm's for you. Uh, the, the title listed for us is a song about rest, but if you're looking uh, in a Bible, the superscription says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And if you know that portion of the book of 2 Samuel, uh, you know that this is a time of civil war when, David's, when King David's own son is attempting a coup to overthrow his own father. And there is a lot of bloodshed. There is a lot of fleeing and hiding. And there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot of danger. Uh, and so if you feel yourself this morning uh, to be in the midst of a lot of danger, maybe not armies coming after you, but nonetheless danger that you probably feel as if you can reach out and touch, this psalm is for you. Let's read it together. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we've read your word. And we know that it's without error in any part, that it is living and active that it is powerful, that it has the ability to nourish and to refresh us. We know that it is perfect, reviving our souls. But we are weak, and we are tired, and we are frantic, and we so often do not have ears to hear 
or hearts to understand. And so, Lord, give us what we do not have. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand, so that we would turn to you and be healed. Would you do this and would you get glory for it? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 19th century, uh, a man named Charles Blondin, I think I'm saying his name right, became famous for his daredevil tactics, for his tightrope walking. He was, in the 19th century term, a phenomenalist, and became famous for walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope with no net underneath him. And you can picture Niagara Falls on the Canadian-American border uh, with freezing cold sheets of water pouring down with ice and snow at the bottom. Some 150 feet above that ice and snow and the rocks and the water with some 1,300 feet of rope less than two inches thick. Charles Blondin tightrope walked across this to the, the just outrage of these crowds. People were literally taking bets on whether or not he would make it. And then it became something of a continuing show where he would come back and do it again. And once he cooked an omelet while walking across the tightrope. Once he backflipped across the, the tightrope. Once he did it at night. Once he even pushed a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And while he was doing this, looked back at the crowds and said, who believes that I can push a person in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on this tightrope? And the crowd's all cheering, and they say, yes, you can do it, we believe. And then he says, who's first? And of course, no one did. Eventually, someone did, uh, I think at a later show, let him do that, or at least carry him uh, on, on his back. But that difference is a big difference, isn't it, between do you believe that I can do this and will you get in the wheelbarrow? See, that's something of what's going on in Psalm 3 because ultimately all the questions of of rest and laying down and sleeping and waking up again and, and having salvation belong to the Lord in this passage Really, at the, at the moment of crisis that David's in, what they come down to is this question. Is, can God be trusted? Can I trust him enough to get in the wheelbarrow? You see, not, not just do I believe in this sort of abstract, uh, pedagogical way that salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, I believe that. That's the type of thing that I would, I would, I would write it on my mirror every morning. I would quilt it. I would put it on a bumper sticker on a car. But would I get in the wheelbarrow? You see, that's the question. Behind this issue of where can I find rest, it's what can I put my trust in? What can I put my faith in? That's the burden of this passage. And what, and what David is trying to show us, what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us through David, the only place you can find rest is the God of the cross. 
The God of the cross is the only way to true rest. And I want to see that this morning in, under two headings, resting from our fear and resting from our failure. Resting from our fear and resting from our failure. Both very pertinent here. Just again to rehearse the context of this, David is on the run, hiding from his own son Absalom. And there's much to be afraid of because his whole kingdom is at war. His whole kingdom is in the midst of a coup where it, it, uh, the, the word that we see in verse 1, Lord, how many are my foes? That root behind the phrase, how many, is the root of what the, the writer of 2 Samuel repeats again and again to talk about how many and all of the, the people of Israel were going out to serve Absalom and were turning against King David. And so when he says, how many are my foes, that's not hyperbole. He's literally saying, there's a lot of enemies and they have swords and shields and they're coming after me. It's literally the root that the number 10,000 in Hebrew is rooted in. And so they have swords and shields, and so I need a shield. Right? Isn't that the burden of this passage? Is verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. So there's much to be afraid of. There's much to cause fear. Fear is the most basic threat to true rest. See, from the, from the time that we're born, the thing that keeps us up at night the thing that literally keeps you from sleeping is fear. And that might start as, I saw a shadow. There's a ghost in my closet. There's a monster under my bed. And I would, I would contend that it evolves over time, but that basic fear never goes away. And that is always what is threatening to rob us of rest Fear essentially says to us, you are not safe. Not dissimilar from what the enemies say in verse 2, there is no salvation for you in God. In other words, you're going to plummet to the bottom of Niagara Falls. God cannot be trusted. See, take this idea of salvation out of its sort of hyper-spiritual box and bring it down to the kitchen table because that's where it is for David. It's not less than spiritual, but it's not only spiritual. It, in other words, there's not this sharp uh, break between salvation having to do with being forgiven of my sins and salvation having to do with armies coming out against me. It's both of these. It's can I trust God with the circumstances of my life especially at the moment of crisis. There's no salvation for me in God. Essentially, it's the same mocking accusation that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, when, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve and says, did God really say that you can, can't eat any of the fruit? And says, he knows that, that when you eat the fruit, you'll become like God. And, and essentially what Satan is doing in the Garden of Eden is subtly, subtly suggesting to Adam and Eve, I don't think you can trust God. I don't think he has your best interest at heart. I don't think that he wants what's best for you or that he can accomplish it for you. 
I think you have to go take that fruit and self-actualize and protect yourself because you need a shield, just like David. You see, and we may not have armies racing after us, but we all have that sense, right, of, of can I trust God? I don't know. Maybe I need to go get my own shield. Maybe I need to get my own shield. And that shield could come in the sense of just sheer denial. There's nothing to be afraid of. Everything's fine. But I would bet in 2022 that doesn't work for most of us. I'm sure most of us are aware of things to be concerned about. Things that keep us up at night. Whether that's financial fear, family fear, literal uh, health fear as we come into another full year of struggling with the pandemic. When am I going to get the virus? Am I going to get the virus? I got boosted. Is that enough? We're all afraid in that realm. There's a fear lurking around every corner, not to mention What's going to happen with my family? What's going to happen with my retirement? Okay, I see the passage that says there is salvation for me in God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But I really need the NASDAQ to recover. Because that's where my retirement is. But see, that's where my security is. You see, this passage reaches into our haggard circumstances and says, can you trust God here? Not, can you trust God when things recover? Can you trust God right here, when you're in the wheelbarrow? If we were stereotyping college students, I would say there's a number of sort of false shields that they might fall into. They might, I'm, I'm a campus minister, so I deal mostly with college students, you understand. Uh, it would fall into sort of the, the, the achieving shield, the shield of achievement. That The reason that I feel secure is that I've made perfect A's, I've got a 4.0, I'm in every honor society, I've taken care of everything, my job performance is perfect, I'm in every community service group, I'm well-liked in the right social groups, I have checked off all the boxes, so to speak. And it reminds me of the classic film Chariots of Fire, which I'm sure many of you know, where Eric Little, the, the runner who was raised on the mission field, talks about um, feeling God's pleasure when he runs. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And then his opponent talks about his motivation for running this way. He says, when the gun goes off, I have a four-foot lane, and I have ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I wonder if for some of us, the shield of achievement, the shield of having all of the boxes checked, might be cloaking a deep fear that if I don't check off every box, there's no security for me. A deep fear that there's no salvation in God. 
Again, if we're stereotyping college students, it might be the, the, the shield of fun and connection and entertainment and always being on top of some sort of social ladder, always being at some kind of party, always being entertained. This would be the person who during the lockdown a couple of years ago was always uh, live streaming something or FaceTiming somebody. Because this is the subculture that invented the term fear of missing out. See, could it be, if that's you, that the shield of fun is actually cloaking a deep fear of loneliness and rejection and isolation? That if I'm not fun enough, if I'm not entertaining enough, I will be left out, I will be alone, that there is no salvation for me and God. The third sort of stereotype, again, not to pick on college students, it's just what I know, would be the shield of laziness. You know, the, the, the one looking and saying, I don't know what's wrong with all of you people. I'm not having a problem with rest. I'm waking up at three in the afternoon. I'm doing whatever I want to do. I'm eating whatever I want to eat. I'm working however little I want to work. But it's naive to think that's rest, isn't it? See, that's not true rest. What that is, is mistaking leisure for rest. And it puts us in the category of Solomon and Ecclesiastes when he says that he didn't deny himself any pleasure. He didn't withhold anything from himself. And at the end of the day, he sees that it's all emptiness. He says it's striving after wind. I wonder if the shield of laziness has led to you feeling that you're striving after the wind. Friends, we need a shield. I would submit to you all three of these false shields don't do anything about the true fear underneath. You see, ultimately, these false shields function only as distractions against the fears. And they're always there underneath. The threat to our security is always still there. So true rest can't just come from those things. And true rest can't just come from saying, well, I am powerful enough and I have the efficiency tools to be able to fix my circumstances so that there won't be anything to fear. That would be essentially to put the burden of the entire universe on your shoulders because you know you can't control everything. Martin Luther's a co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, was known to struggle with anxiety and fear. And every once in a while when he could tell that his friend Philip was sort of spiraling into these anxious moments, Martin Luther would put his hand on Philip's shoulder and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Friends, could it be the good news for you this morning? Might be the Holy Spirit the God of the cross, putting his hand on your shoulder and saying, you can cease to rule the world. Verse 3 says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. That's the term for weight, meaning you are the one who gives me significance. And the lifter of my head. That phrase, lifter of my head, is it's the image of, almost of a pillow, of a support, of something that you are leaning against. 
It gives me the image of the beloved disciple leaning against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. You see, what's the true shield? Why can I know that I can have true rest, that salvation belongs to the Lord? Because he says, lean against me. He says, lean against me. I've got you. Why can I lay down and sleep? Because the Lord sustains me. I'm still in the phase right now where I have little kids who fall asleep in the car all the time. And it's always a shock when they fall asleep and they're in these uh, car seats with the straps going across their chest and they fall asleep and just, if you take a hard turn, they just jostle and go this way and that and their head slings back and forth and it looks violent. And if you have, if you have to slam on the brakes ever, if someone cuts you off or something like that, you slam on the brakes and through your back mirror, you can just see them just kind of go, oh. Where the, the, if, if it was up to them, they would not be able to hold themselves. But what? Those straps, they've got, they've got them. Another little kid story. I remember when my daughter was a newborn, when she was just getting to where she could sort of sit up and hold her head up and grab things, you'd, you'd put her on your, on your lap, and you'd hold her one hand at her back and one hand at her front. And, and, and she's learning to kind of grab things. She'd grab on to my hands and then every once in a while, she would lose her grip, right? And have you ever, have you ever seen an infant do this? They, they sort of jostle and wake up and, and frantically sort of get, wig out and grab onto your hands and you can see their eyes popping because they're thinking that if they lose their grip, they're going to plummet. But what do we know? It's the, it's, it's the father holding the child that keeps them up. You see, it's, it's not her grip on her father. It's her father's grip on her. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustains me. Cease to rule the world and let the Lord sustain you. Rest from fear. Now, secondly, resting from our failures Resting from our failures, I just want to talk about one phrase for the most part here. You, O Lord, verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And then the last verse, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Verse 3, well, let's back up. Again, to rehearse the context a little bit, David is in the midst of civil war. He is on the run from his own people. And if you've read 2 Samuel thoroughly, you know that he is not the victim. That it is all his fault. If you read 2 Samuel, that's not to say that every sin is his sin, but all of the carnage that's happening in Israel in these chapters of 2 Samuel traces back to David's failures as king. See, when you're a father, when you're a boss, when you're a teacher, your mistakes are somewhat important, right? Because they affect other people. Imagine if you're a king. How big are his failures in their impact? 
David's failure as king, especially his failure in his sin with Bathsheba, leads directly to this carnage. So that as David looks out at these battlefields, he knows every dead body on this battlefield is related to my failure. That's the situation David is in because his sin leads directly to the rape of one of his daughters by one of his sons and the vengeful murder of that son by Absalom, which leads to Absalom being banished and then Absalom working behind the scenes to politic and to brew this coup behind his back. So all of this is connected to David's unfaithfulness. And if you're like me, that, that sounds like me. And I bet it sounds like you at times. That when I, look, when I look at the mess in my life, I can't just say, oh, if I just got a clean slate, it would all be good. No, I'm the one who made it messy. You get to that point around the Christmas holidays, somebody needs to clean up all this junk. Well, you're the one who put it there. Right? Do you, get, do you get in this place in your families, in your marriages, or with your siblings where you're pointing your fingers? Clean it up. Where did, how, did, how did the living room get like this? How did the sink get this way? Why can't I even see the bottom of the drain? How did it get this way? You did it. No, you did it. No, it's all connected to David's failure. And friends, when you look at your own life, chances are your own sin, your own failure has played a massive role in the situation you find yourself in. And so that's the situation David finds himself in. And verse 3 gives us a clue to what he's thinking about. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. That word shield in Hebrew is a very unusual word. And the most prominent place where we see it is Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 1 is this covenant-making ceremony where God comes to Abram and makes a covenant, a, a promise oath with Abram in Genesis where, where essentially it, it was a more powerful form of what we would do when we notarize something where we say, no, I really mean this promise, and I, I want you to hold me to this promise. It's, it's what one theologian calls a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Genesis 15, chapter 1 starts this way. This is the beginning of that covenant process. God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. It's not a common word. It's, it's very rare in the Old Testament. And scholars agree that it is very likely that David is thinking about Genesis 15 as he writes this song, Psalm 3. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, God says to Abram. See, God promised to make Abram into a great nation and to give him a kingdom of descendants. And he appears to, to Abram in Genesis 15 and says, I'm your protector, I'm your shield, I'm your glory, I'm your reward. I'm the one who lifts your head. And then verse 8 of Genesis 15, Abram asks God, Oh Lord, how, do I, how can I know 
that I will possess it. In other words, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know you'll fulfill your promise? How do I know that you can push me in a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And without reading the entirety of Genesis 15, God tells him what will sound very odd to us, but will sound very normal to Abram. He says, go get, and he lists a bunch of different animals, go get these different animals and slaughter them and cut them in half and spread them out so that their blood forms a little alleyway. This was a common covenant-making ceremony in the ancient Near East. You would slaughter animals, literally rend them apart, and their blood would flow in the space between, and the two covenant-making parties would walk together through that blood. It's a little more powerful than a notary signature. The message is clear, isn't it? I am going to fulfill my promise. And if I don't, may I be rent asunder like these animals. I promise on my own blood to keep my promise. This is God putting his money where his mouth is. But here's what happens in Genesis 15. Abram never walks through the pieces. God puts Abram to sleep and a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which scholars agree is meant to represent the presence of God, passes through the blood alone. Do you get the message? Do you get how God is turning this covenant ceremony on its head? He's saying, Abram, I'm your shield, because guess what? You're going to fail. You will not keep your end of the bargain. You will not follow me perfectly. You will not walk before me and be blameless as I've ordered you to. But I'm going to fulfill my oath still. And the way this covenant is going to be kept is that even though you are the one who, are, who is going to be faithless, in my faithfulness I will be rent asunder. And I will redeem you through my own blood. You see that the God of the cross is the reason why we can have true rest. Because as he hangs on the cross, Jesus Christ is fulfilling God's promise in Ab- to Abram in Genesis 15. That it's my blood that will be spilt to redeem you so that you can know that I can be trusted, that I will keep my promise. See, God is announcing the gospel all the way back in Genesis 15. And David, as he looks at the chaos of his own life, as he looks at the carnage that his sin has brought into the world and into the family of God, he says, I need a shield. Lord, you are my shield. Only you are trustworthy. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. Your blessing, the blessing promised to Abram is upon your people. Why? Because of God's faithfulness. Not because of ours, but because of God's faithfulness. And friends, what true rest looks like is entering into that reality. 
I took my kids to go see Sing 2 uh, this past week, um, and uh, it was all right. Um, th- there's a scene in Sing 2, you may have seen these, where w- one of the characters goes up on one of these, I don't know what you call it in, in theater parlance, but like, like a fly rope where they have a harness and uh, something attached to them. It's, it's what Peter Pan flies on, if you ever see Peter Pan fly on a stage. And, and this person dives off this huge tower. And in reality, the actor is terrified in, in the show, right? But then this other character does it. And for a moment, you get to see her. For, I mean, it must be 200 feet in the air. Just jumping and falling through the air, knowing this, this harness is going to hold me. And I think something that's compelling about that, whenever we see something like that, it's not that we actually think this person is flying, right? Like, we don't actually believe that. We know it's a, it's a harness, it's a, it's a gadget, it's, it's a, a mechanism. But is, there's something powerful about seeing this person enter into the joy of that harness working and having just no fear. I think what we're seeing when we see that, friends, is rest. I think that's the kind of rest that the Holy Spirit holds out to us in Psalm 3. That everything that could terrify you is here. Everything about your circumstances that is terrifying has not changed. What has changed is that you know that the one who holds you can be trusted. Let's pray. King Jesus, we know that you can be trusted. We know that you are powerful and you are mighty and you are faithful. We know that because of the cross of Calvary where you bled and died a sinner's death so that we might have the adoption as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, would you free us from being controlled by fear and being defined by our own sin and failure? Would you help us to embrace the gospel, to trust that you are faithful, to trust that your grace is more powerful than even the worst of our sins. Lord, through that, would you give us rest? Lord, would you allow us to embrace that you are our shield, the lifter of our head? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.